Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. And this week's sponsors, the Gates Foundation and the Heising Simons Foundation. I'm Lewis Friedberg, going solo this week. Well, it's been another big week in education in California. These days, every week seems like a big week. Schools started to offer in-person instruction at an accelerating pace or are announcing plans to do so. Remarkably, Governor Newsom said that an estimated 9,000 schools out of about 11,000 in California are opening in the state or will be open in the next few weeks. Of course, we don't really know what opening means. Many students will be going back to school for part of the school day, part of the school week, and in some cases, They may be doing distance learning while they are in their classrooms on school campuses. And spring break is about to start at colleges in California and nationally, raising fears that it could lead to another spike in the coronavirus, just as it did a year ago. Some colleges have come up with various ideas to keep students close to home, like UC Davis, which offered students a $75 voucher to spend on local businesses if they stayed close to campus during the spring break. We'll see how that works out. This week, we'll talk about the new stresses being imposed by the pandemic on school superintendents and how it could lead to more turnover in the top leadership positions in districts in California. We'll also discuss this week's sad news that Mills College, established in 1852 in California, shortly after the state's founding, will be closing its doors. But first, we want to go to the governor's office to talk about some innovative ideas that are emerging to ensure that all students not only make it to college, but succeed once they are there. We're pleased to have with us Londe Ajose. She's the senior policy advisor to Governor Newsom on higher education. She chaired a task force that came out with a report recently titled Recovery with Equity. It's looking beyond the pandemic, but what are the reforms that we need to be considering once the pandemic is somewhat in the rear view mirror. Welcome, Londe. Thank you so much for having me. Londe, California has a more diverse student body perhaps than any public higher education system in the country. We have more low-income students in our colleges and public universities than any other state university system, more first-generation students. And uh, the state is making considerable efforts to help students succeed on the margins. Why do you feel there is a need to focus on equity at this time? You know, I think oftentimes we conflate diversity with equity. And while we do have a higher education system that has a number of diverse elements, what we also know about the student body of that system is that people graduate at vastly different rates and that people aren't represented in the ways in which they are represented in the population at large. So, you know, 40% of California is Latino. 6% of California is African American. And we don't have that concentration, certainly, of individuals in the UC system to represent the, the population at large. And then and there are other systems where we are overrepresented, such as Latinos are overrepresented, if you will, in the community college system. And yet we know community college graduation rates lag far behind what one would expect. So, you know, the idea of equity is to really ensure that we are providing the students who are in our in institutions with the kinds of supports that they need to be able to have the same kinds of outcomes as those students who otherwise are succeeding at expected rates. 
Let's just start with one of your proposals, of the task force's proposals, and that was making this A to G sequence of courses that students have to take to be admitted to either UC and CSU. You are suggesting that this become the default high school curriculum or required in order to get a high school diploma. Now, there are similarities between the high school graduation requirements and the A to G, but it's not totally the same. So why do you think this is necessary? And is it feasible? I think the question of feasibility is one that we really have to engage CDE and the state board around, you know, the how. But I think from the perspective of higher education, you know, when we think about the representation of individuals in our system, again, they are not, while we have diversity in our system, we certainly don't have equity in our system. And some of that is driven by the kinds of opportunities that students have at the K-12 level. So that is one reason why we really pushed for the idea that every student ought to have access to an A through G curriculum and that that should be the default. What we also know is that we have an economy that is changing dramatically and that while students may not think upon graduation from 12th grade that college is in their future, many, many adults realize 10 years down the road, gee, I kind of wish I'd done that. And then at that point, the ladder to that opportunity feels like it's missing a few rungs. And so really the idea here is why not have everyone have that opportunity, whether they choose to execute against it as soon as they graduate from high school is a different story. But if people want to go back to school, if they want to retool their skills, if they decide they want to get a degree much later in life, then that doesn't become an obstacle or a barrier. One of the other things you point to and really describe quite dramatically is the Byzantine application process that students have to go through, which is a disincentive for people who are perhaps on the margins, might not know exactly what needs to be done. You are calling for a common application to the public universities, and I think including community colleges. I think anybody who's applied to college knows about the common application, but that's typically for private schools where you file one application for a bunch of schools. Why do you think a common app for public education is also necessary? Here we are in California, we have this extraordinary higher education system. And in my mind, it should be open and available to everyone. And we have many students in California who don't have what we call college knowledge. That is, people in their home or people in their community who've had experience with higher education who can help to guide them informally into that process. Because we don't have that in every home in California, it is incumbent upon us in higher education and in the state to make sure that we are providing that pathway so that students find it much more simple. We need to remove the obstacles for students to be able to find their way from their high school to their college. And so the idea is that we need to do what we can to remove those obstacles. A common platform or a common portal whereby a student can apply to their UC and their CSU and enroll in a community college if they choose to do that in advance of going to a UC and CSU would simplify that process. The other idea uh, related to that is that we would have a student's transcript preloaded into that system so that a student would know from the beginning whether or not they'd completed all of their coursework to be able to apply to a CSU or to a UC. So we're really trying to take all of the complexity, the verification processes, the scrambling to understand which program am I eligible for, going to multiple places, having to register multiple times. How do we reduce that? Another proposal was creating one online platform where students could apply for non-educational services like childcare, transportation, mental health care, and so on. Wow, sounds like a great idea. 
Is it feasible? Let me tell you, this is one of my pet peeves. We ask students when they go to college to prove over and over and over again that they are poor so that they can have access to resources. You have to prove that you need housing. You have to prove that you need food. You have to prove that you need money. You have to prove that you need a transportation voucher. You have to prove those things over and over and over again. It seems unconscionable to me that a student who is on free and reduced lunch when they are in 12th grade then goes to college and spends a half a semester not having enough food to eat, when in fact we knew that they didn't have enough food when they were in 12th grade, and we should be able, in my mind, to pre-enroll them in something like CalFresh so that they seamlessly move from one system to the other and so that they get access to those services. So in my mind, that is a role, it's, it's a particular role I think that the state needs to play. And what I see my role is as higher education policy advisor for the governor is to make college much more available to all students. And so if we can do that by ensuring that the systems themselves, the higher education systems, all of the segments and the K-12 system are more interoperable so that students benefit, then that's a great service to the students in our state. Just have to ask you, you are working very closely with the governor on this. How invested is the governor in these proposals? Has he been informed? Does he know what what you and others are proposing? The governor is very well informed. You know, we gave the governor a copy of the report and an appendix for for a briefing that we were giving him on a different topic. And true to form, he came having read the entire 70 page report and came asking lots of questions. So he is very mindful of the need for many of the recommendations that we have made. We really want to spend this period of time making sure that the ideas that came forth through this task force, and I want to just say for a moment about the task force, we were so lucky. We had experts from outside of the state of California who focused on education, who focused on equity, who focused on higher education innovation, come and spend six months with us really thinking through these ideas. I think what is also going on in a parallel path is this building the cradle to career data system. And this seems to be very much aligned with what the goal of this new data system is that is very much underway right now. The Governor Newsom is very bullish about this data system. He's a deep believer in data and information to inform good practice. And so that data system will exist. And one of the opportunities that we have, we had through this task force is to think about now that we know we will have a data system, how do we use that data system to improve the lives of Californians? And one way is to make sure that if we have access to a student's transcript, that we are able to then, as I said before, preload that transcript into an application portal so that students don't have to run around getting copies of transcripts and figuring out, am I eligible for this, that, and the other, that the information is all centralized and that that becomes a great benefit to students as they they, um, make their way towards college. Well, thank you so much. We've been talking with Londe Ojose, Senior Policy Advisor on Higher Education to Governor Newsom. Thanks for talking with us today, Londe. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up, what stresses superintendents of school districts are experiencing during the pandemic? Turnover of the top leadership in school districts has long been a problem. In fact, EdSource published a story this week that out of California's 30 largest districts, by June of this year, about half of those districts will have new superintendents compared to only four years ago. 
We have with us Becca Bracey. She's executive director of the Broad Center in Los Angeles. She's studied the issue of school leadership for years. She also has overseen the Broad Academy, which offers professional development for current and aspiring superintendents. Welcome, Becca. Thank you. It's great to be here. These very prominent resignations, both Carranza in New York and Vince Matthews in San Francisco, is this kind of unusual? In the best of times, it's an incredibly difficult job, and that definitely leads to a fair amount of turnover, and people are always coming and going from one superintendency into another or a superintendency into another role. But I did expect to see a lot more resignations this year because of the pandemic, simply because what's already been an incredibly challenging job was made enormously more difficult because of the pandemic. There's various surveys, and you've done surveys, that superintendents, particularly in large urban districts, don't stay that long. I mean, three, four years, that's, that's a pretty good tenure. I mean, interestingly, when we did a study of the largest 100 school districts a few years ago, we did find that the average tenure was longer than the conventional wisdom or what people thought. The average tenure was actually closer to six years than the two, three, or four that's often cited, although certainly there are specific districts that are anomalies where there's more frequent turnover. That said, when you're running a major organization like a large urban school district, even five or six years can be short in terms of what it takes to really lead the major change and improvements that we need to see in these systems to really get the results that we want for students. Just talk a little bit about the particular pressures that superintendents are under right now during the pandemic. Pre-pandemic, superintendents already had many people and groups that they were responsible for serving and for satisfying in their job. Um, And that was already difficult. People have very different opinions on what a good education is and how to get there. And there's different constituencies who represent so many different facets of the system, whether it's students, teachers, other school staff, parents, business leaders, faith leaders, politicians. Uh, But then when you get into a pandemic situation where you're dealing with A crisis of such urgency and of such high stakes, it's literally life or death. I mean, many people would argue that public education is a matter of life or death, given the consequences it has on students' lives. But the pandemic is an immediate, acute life or death situation for so many people. Then the opinions and the urgency and the emotions just all get amplified. And then an additional challenge is this is not something that we have gone through before, at least in our current era. You can you know, talk about the influenza epidemic, but that's not something that people can... Of 1918. Exactly. Cannot really draw on in terms of our lived experience and current technology and all of that. And so you just are now in a position where you're trying to address a massive issue, but there is no proven best practice. There is no perfect answer. The context, the data, the situation is changing constantly. And you as a superintendent are trying to figure out how to address that within your district community. And it's an almost impossible task to put a leader in to try and come up with the best decisions under those circumstances. During this pandemic, it does seem like people are looking for somebody to hold responsible for why the kids aren't back in school, whether it's the governor, whether it's a superintendent, whether it's the mayor, whether it's somebody. A lot of people may not be aware the superintendent actually reports to an elected school board. So uh, it's not exactly a free agent. But naturally, people want to hold the superintendent responsible. Yeah, it's interesting. I think before this, a lot of people didn't necessarily even know 
who their superintendent was or what their job was. I mean, it's a position that is often behind the scenes for a lot of people because they're focused on their children's teachers, principals, bus drivers, like the people they come into contact with on a daily basis. And now as people are looking for, you know, who's communicating out these changes, who's the one making this decision or at least communicating this decision, many superintendents have come more into the foreground and become much more household names than they probably were before. And you're right, the superintendent is always reporting to a board, in most cases an elected board, in some cases an appointed board, but that board has the true governing responsibility for what's happening in the system. And the superintendent's job is to execute on that, to implement the guidance from the school board to make the system run. And in this case, they're also having to listen to local or county public health officials, to a mayor, to a governor, to the CDC. And, you know, there's many other people who are weighing in on what can and should be happening. So often a superintendent is communicating something that wasn't even his or her decision to make, but they're the one who has to make it a reality for their district community. Well, what about uh, teachers unions and teachers? That's been a big issue during this pandemic. Now, this is baked in to school districts where you negotiate collective bargaining agreements with your teachers union. So this is always an issue. But to what extent is this now heightened and more complicated during this time? You're exactly right that these relationships, the power dynamics, the roles of the unions and others in the mix have existed long before the pandemic. And part of the issue is they will exist long after. So there are relationships and policies and ways of working that are not just one-off in this pandemic. And I'm sure that superintendents and board members and union leaders are thinking about this current moment, but they're also thinking about the long-term, that these are groups of people who have to continue working together even once we get past this crisis. That said, often what the unions or teachers are advocating for primarily impact themselves. So if they're talking about working conditions or wages or benefits, those are things that don't always directly impact parents and families in the community in the way that whether school is in person or not or is open or not does. Now, that's a little misleading because obviously the way teachers are supported and cared for and treated does have an impact on how they're able to teach and be in the classroom. So I don't mean to say that issues of wages and benefits and working conditions are completely separate. Yeah, but it doesn't affect families directly. Exactly. No one has thought that unless unless the teachers go out on strike, it has never impacted whether or not families can send their children into the school building. So now when you're looking at the needs, the legitimate needs and interests and concerns of teachers, you know, it's coming right to the foreground as parents and families are saying, what about, you know, the needs for our students? And I do think people are probably representing teachers unions and teachers in a more monolithic way than they really are. There's certainly an incredible diversity of situations and opinions among teachers, whether or not they're part of a teacher's union about what they want to be doing for their own children. But certainly it's played out as a, you know, teachers versus parents or teachers versus the superintendent. Talking with Becca Bracey, executive director of the Broad Center in Los Angeles. Uh, Becca, we started off talking about that you were expecting to see more resignations. What's your sense of that? 
I do think there are a number of superintendents who were prepared to resign or move on to something different last year who felt that they simply couldn't do that in the middle of the pandemic, that that would be irresponsible of them. And they wanted to stay so the district didn't have to undergo a leadership transition. But it's been a really rough year. And now that the vaccines are rolling out, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. I would imagine that many of them will feel more able to resign or leave their their positions this year. Okay, we always try to focus on solutions, or at least if there's not a solution, some affirmative response. What is your recommendation for community school board superintendents who are now, I mean, this pandemic is not easy for anyone. And of course, these superintendents are going through the same issues in their personal lives that all of us are going through as well. But what advice would you give in terms of how to get through this? I think we have to stay focused on the urgency of delivering a safe and effective education to our students and keeping everyone involved in the districts safe and focused on helping students learn. And we need to give everyone a lot more grace on how this is all rolling out. As you said, superintendents and board members are dealing with all the same issues in their own personal lives that are coming up system-wide. And not that we need to not have high expectations for people who are in these jobs, but we do need to have a measure of patience, understanding, a little more seeking to understand and being curious and aware of what's going on versus jumping to conclusions or jumping to judgment that a superintendent or school board simply doesn't care about students or doesn't care about teachers or doesn't care about the local economy. I am sure that is not the case. And it's about trying to make incredibly difficult decisions and the more support we can give to provide room for those difficult, complicated decisions to be made well, the better. Well, on that note, thank you so much. We've been talking with Becca Bracey, Executive Director of the Broad Center in Los Angeles. Uh, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for the conversation. We can't conclude this podcast without noting the announcement this week that Mills College, which has been part of the California higher education ecosystem since 1852, will be closing its doors to undergraduate and graduate instruction in the next two or three years. Larry Gordon wrote about the announcement this week, and we're pleased to have Larry with us. Welcome, Larry. Good to be here. Thanks, Lewis. Why did Mills reach this decision that it had to close its doors? Well, Mills has been struggling for decades. 30 years ago, they thought about admitting men to their undergraduate student body for the first time, and it caused this huge revolt and a student strike, and the, the administration thought the only way it's going to succeed is to admit men. But they relented, and here we are 30 years later, private colleges, some of them have been having enrollment issues, enrollment weaknesses all along, and then the pandemic hit, and just in one year, Mills dropped 15% of their student body. I mean, they were down now total under 1,000 including undergraduate and graduate school. And, you know, that's really just not tenable on a campus that has over 100 acres. Because you've got a big infrastructure to support and faculty and so on, a lot of fixed costs, and the economies of scale just don't work. As well as the student body, you know, Mills has always been a very liberal, progressive place, and they've gone out of their way to recruit low-income students. So the student body, many of them are on financial aid, so they're not even getting full freight tuition revenues to the school. I think something like 40% of the student body now are eligible for Pell Grants, which means that their family income is usually like 40000 a year and below. So Mills got hit with a double whammy. 
Very unfortunate news. Uh, we hope next week to have President Hillman of Mills College to talk uh, from her perspective as to how the college reached that very difficult decision. But what, what is the plan now? They're not going to be shutting immediately, right? No, they're going to keep open for two more years, but they won't be admitting any more students after next fall. And then in 2023, they're supposed to be converting to some type of institute or think tank focusing on women's issues and gender and, and racial equity. But it's still very vague. And they do have a huge campus there of prime real estate. I wouldn't be surprised if some other nearby universities, perhaps University of California, Berkeley, is interested in renting out the dorms and busing students over to Cal or, you know, many other things. Talking with Larry Gordon, Ed Source reporter, who wrote this week about the announcement that Mills College will be closing its doors in two or three years, at least two students uh, for undergraduate and graduate instruction. Now, Larry, one thing we haven't really focused on during this pandemic is what's happening in private education, both on the K-12 side and at the higher end side. You know, so much of the focus has been on public schools and colleges, but a lot of students are attending private colleges and universities in California, right? That's right, Lewis. In, in California alone, 200,000 students are undergraduates at private nonprofit colleges and universities. Now, that includes the big ones like University of Southern California and Stanford and small ones like Occidental and Whittier. And, you know, the supporters of those colleges love the schools. And they also keep pointing out that if it weren't for their existence, that'd be 200,000 more students struggling to pack in at CSUs or UCs. So they're always saying they do the state a, a service. You know, students can get Cal grants to go pay for some of those schools, but the, often it's not enough. And also it gives more choice to students, often smaller classes and more individual attention. Larry, let me also ask you, when this pandemic started, or shortly after it started, there were a lot of dire predictions that we would see lots of small colleges, particularly liberal arts colleges, would be threatened or potentially even closed as a result of the pandemic. I'm just reading here a college in the Chronicle of Higher Education, actually only 10 colleges have actually closed since the pandemic through the end of January. But of course, that doesn't mean that many of them aren't threatened. But what has actually happened over the last uh, 15 months? Well, I think that it's been sort of a tale of two cities. You know, the, the, the more prestigious private colleges, the Pomona's, the Ivy League, smaller ones on the East Coast, you know, they're actually doing quite well, especially with the lifting of SAT requirements. You know, there's been a lot of people trying to get in there for the first time that might have not have been eligible in the past. But then there's a huge tier of schools, 1,500 students and below, that have long been on shaky financial grounds and may not be immediate closure, but this pandemic is really putting pressures on them that may be hard to recover from. Not only, like everybody else, the shift to online education, but also the losses in parking and dorm revenues and alumni giving, all sorts of things that don't continue well during a shutdown like this. And, you know, we'll see. You know, the people who, who run the Association of Independent College Association in California, you know, say they suspect there are going to be some more closings. It may not be immediate, but there will be some kind of a shakedown. But certainly those who are most at risk are those that have kind of struggled for quite a few years. And that certainly been the case with Mills. 
it's particularly uh, in California difficult just because California has been so strong on public education. Within easy commuting distance of Mills, there are several strong CSUs and a quick bus ride away to UC Berkeley, which is one of the world's most prestigious universities, as well as bunches of community colleges where students can start out at basically for free. So just on finances, places like Mills have really faced challenges for a long time. And the pandemic makes it worse. Yeah, well, just another example of the catastrophic impact of the pandemic in so many ways and how it's upended education really at all levels. Thanks so much for joining us today, Larry. Thanks so much, Lewis. Good to be here. And on that note, that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe MacDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. Thanks for listening. Stay well. We'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.